Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Before I really start, I'm going to put this story in context, and um, yeah, I'm going to continue the God is So Good series that Philip began last Sunday, and as this is part of the God is So Good series, I think we're looking particularly this morning how Jesus represented his Father's goodness in his life and actions and in turn challenging ourselves about how we represent Jesus in and through our lives. So the story of the Pharisees bringing the adulterous woman to Jesus to be judged is almost the conclusion of what had happened in the previous few weeks of Jesus' life, which is recorded in John 7. There Jesus had been sharing who he was with his family, 
who didn't really believe him. They pushed Jesus to go public if he was, you know, who he said he was. And eventually Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a type of harvest thanksgiving. And there he teaches in the temple. While the people and the religious leaders were swayed backwards and forwards about who Jesus was. Was he the Messiah or was he a charlatan? The Pharisees and scribes had even sent guards out to um, arrest Jesus. So when the guards returned empty-handed, the religious leaders asked why they hadn't brought Jesus in. Well, they say, well, no one speaks like he does. So it seems that the Pharisees and other leaders think they'll try a different way to get Jesus to condemn himself so that they can arrest him. And here, our passage of scripture begins in John 8. First, just notice that Jesus has been on the Mount of Olives overnight, which suggests a night of prayer, if not a night's rest. If we're going to be able to walk in the steps of Jesus, if we're going to have the heart of Jesus, if we're going to speak and act wisely for our Father's glory, then we need to pray and rest. I believe very much that if we're going to see God's kingdom come in this place or anywhere that we live, we must pray. In prayer, we build our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We learn his heart and what work he's prepared for us to do. But how hard do we find that? It's a challenge, isn't it? Find your own Mount of Olives and spend time with the Lord. So at dawn, Jesus came into the temple courts and sat down to teach, just as all the rabbis, the teachers did at that time, and all the people gathered round him. What on earth was the attraction to go and listen to Jesus at dawn? We touched on it earlier. The guards who had heard Jesus teach said that no one spake like he did. And it's everywhere in the gospels that people flocked to hear Jesus, sometimes to hear him, sometimes because they could feel the power coming from him, sometimes because he healed people. What was it that drew the crowds? I believe it was hope that Jesus brought to those people just as he brings it to us today. It was and is the goodness of God streaming from his son, Jesus. So the Pharisees and scribes stand the woman in front of Jesus and those who are listening to him and say, she's been caught in the act of adultery. We should mention that these religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes were those in authority. They were the experts who enforced the Mosaic law and that's the law that God had scribed on the two stones 
two tablets of stone before Moses. Uh, that's in Exodus 34, which was read here last week. And the Pharisees and the scribes were, to the Old Testament law, what Professor Philip Davis is to economics. Their study of and enforcement of the Mosaic law was the way they expressed their devotion to God. So the religious leaders weren't actually the bad guys of the day. Technically, they were the good guys. The Jews would have described the Romans, their oppressors, as the bad guys. However, the Pharisees and scribes' goodness, as it were, had gone severely awry in their determination to rid the Jews of Jesus, who they insisted threatened their authority and behaved wrongly. So here's another challenge to those of us who may have been Christians for many years, but have become judgmental because someone doesn't quite fit the Christian mold that we believe in. We start acting judgmentally, don't we? Because the security of our own version of faith is threatened. But it's not our place. And we have to be very careful not to step over the line between mercifully not condoning something we believe is against God's law and pronouncing judgment. John makes it clear that the motive of these religious leaders at this time is to trap Jesus. Verse 6 says exactly that. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But just as a point of interest, and I don't know how to pronounce this word, the word parazzo, translated here as trap, is the same word used to describe the temptations or the tests that Jesus underwent in the wilderness. This wasn't the only time the Pharisees had set a trap for Jesus either. They tried to embroil him in the question of divorce in Matthew 19 verse 3 and in Mark 12, 13 to 17 on the issue of paying imperial taxes to Caesar all with the intention of at least making a case against him, to arrest him. So what were they asking Jesus to do in order to trap him? They were asking him to condemn this woman to death. Verses 4 and 5, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Oh, the irony of this. Bringing someone to the King of Kings, the Messiah, the lawgiver himself, the one person who could rightly judge, the one person who could do nothing wrong to try and trap him. But here's the thing. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, the Mosaic law is quite clear. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbour, both 
the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. In Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 29, it's exactly the same. The judgment was death for both the man and women, caught, woman caught in adultery. It's not a matter of cherche la femme, but more a matter of cherche l'homme. Where is the man? The Pharisees see this woman simply as an object to use in their schemes. They don't care about her at all. I find it difficult, actually, that she doesn't have a name, but it emphasises their objectification of her. She is, after all, a human being, and we are all human beings before a holy God who knows us all by name. When Jesus addresses her in verse 10, he addresses her specifically, woman. It speaks to all women everywhere in the world. We're not to be spoken of as this woman, but simply woman. So is Jesus saying this to you, man or woman? Where are they, your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Your accusers will slink away in the presence of Jesus. They are unable to condemn you. And as you answer him, no one, Jesus, he says to you, are you listening to what he says to you? Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So once again, the Pharisees are behaving hypocritically. They're not following the law that they purport to enforce themselves. They haven't brought both the man and the woman who were caught in adultery. But leaving that aside, if Jesus did not condemn the woman to death under Mosaic law, the Pharisees would condemn him to the people as a false messiah who does not support the Mosaic law. However, if he does condemn the woman to death, they can then report him to the Roman authorities for treason because he fostered rebellion by usurping the power of Roman rule to himself. In those days, only Rome had authority over life and death in the Roman provinces. We know this because of John 18, verse 31, when Pilate tells the Jews to take Jesus and judge him by their own law. But he couldn't, could he? They said, treat him under their law, under the Roman law. Treason against Rome was a capital crime, punishable by crucifixion. What a lesson we can learn from what Jesus did next. He stooped down and started writing in the sand on the floor. Jesus did not rush into some complicated discourse about the Mosaic law, who he was, what he brought to the table. No, he took time and space before interacting in what was a critical moment 
The Pharisees probably thought he was avoiding the question. They probably thought they'd got him banged to rights because he couldn't answer. And so they keep on pressing him to answer the question. But that is the way of the world. It was not the way of the Lord. Jesus was and is the way. The way was made for us because God is so good. There are lots of suggestions and surmising about what Jesus wrote on the ground. But basically, if we needed to know, it would have been included in the story. If it was important for us to know, John would have said. He wrote on the ground, in sand or dust or gravel. Whatever he wrote wasn't preserved in ink. It wasn't inscribed in stone. It was meant to be brushed away or blown away or kicked aside. It was impermanent. But I did read an interesting quote from Thomas Aquinas, which really resonated with me. He commented that this action of Jesus stooping down to write on the ground is a picture of God in his mercy stooping down to assist sinful humanity. And he continues in his picture that whenever Jesus stoops down, it signifies an act of God's mercy. And that whenever he stands up straight, it signifies an act of God's justice. I found that really moving. And I give thanks to God for that picture, that picture of God's great goodness for us, of his love and his mercy and his justice. So in verse 7, Jesus straightens up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. He then stoops again and continues writing on the ground. Oh, we know we're all sinners and we've fallen short of the glory of God. We know that because we recognize our need for Jesus to save us from our selfishness, from our sin. And in a sense, if we didn't recognize our inability to be right before God, if we're not convicted of that, to use an old-fashioned word, we won't need to seek salvation from Jesus or, or rejoice to know that our sins are forgiven. But we might find ourselves saying, well, I wouldn't commit adultery. I'd never do that. I wouldn't have done what she did. The thing is that we are adulterous, even as Christians. When we get embroiled in worldly things, rather than godly things, we're unfaithful to God. When we do as the Pharisees have done and make judgments about people, we're unfaithful to God. We know that unfaithfulness is destructive and divisive and hurts others around those involved, yet we still get caught out in situations that are not God-honoring. These things do not honor our relationship with our Heavenly Father. But the wonder is 
that God is truly faithful to us. God is love with a capital L. So let's ask ourselves if we might have felt that we could throw a stone. No, I shouted to myself as I asked myself the question. And then I thought, but do I throw stones if I start judging someone? I found that a challenging question. I have no right to throw any stones. But do I have a little pile of stones ready to throw if I'm upset again? What would I say if the opportunity presented itself again? We all have those things in our head. I wish I'd said that. But if anyone has the right, it's Jesus. I'm quite certain he could have turned the crowd to stone the Pharisees if that had been his way. Instead, he bathed people with mercy. He didn't shower them with stones. And so should we. Well, that leads us to the question, what then is the difference between man's justice and God's mercy? Well, man's justice condemns both the crime and the criminal. God's mercy passes sentence on the sin and forgives the sinner. And I'm going to say that again because this is the way we should be walking and acknowledging the goodness of God in our own lives whilst representing God being so good in our actions towards others. Man's justice condemns both the crime and the criminal. God's mercy passes sentence on the sin and forgives the sinner. <clears throat> By forgiving the sinner, God does what God is. He is love. Forgiveness of sin, showing mercy to the sinner, is in no way an admission that sin isn't sin. It recognises it as wrongdoing and offers a future without guilt or shame. That's what Jesus offers us. This story has presented us with a delicate balance between justice and mercy and forgiveness and accountability for sin. It is also about Jesus' compassion for his people. So let's close with this. How was Jesus most compassionate toward that woman? Was it dispersing the crowds who were trying to kill her? No, it wasn't. The most compassionate thing Christ did was to tell the woman to leave behind her life of sin. Jesus' first action saved her life, but his second saved her for eternal life. Jesus is mighty to save. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jennifer. It, it is amazing how God has woven this service together. Uh, it's such a blessing. You know, we've all come from our different places. 
And here we have the words of the next song. Everyone needs compassion. Everyone needs forgiveness. So um, please stand, our final song. <laughs>